For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, hear highlights from a live show honoring the one-year anniversary of the StoryCorps project, One Small Step. Find out how it changed the lives of some Southern Arizonans and learn why people can react emotionally when trying to share political opinions with someone who disagrees. And the third part of Youth Crossing Gender Borders, called Transgenerational Advice, in which a Tucson trans boy interviews a transgender man about his experiences. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Since 2001, StoryCorps has preserved tens of thousands of conversations in the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. StoryCorps created One Small Step last year in response to the polarization that dominates the national conversation on politics and social issues. It represents an attempt to find common ground and raise awareness of people's similarities rather than their differences. NPR 89.1 has been one of six radio stations across the country to participate. Fifty individuals from our state took part, and the results were very encouraging. Some people knew their conversation partners before they began, but most did not. But the sincere and civil exchange of ideas that occurred forged new friendships and deeper understanding. In December of last year, AZPM and StoryCorps hosted a live event to thank these people for their involvement. And now we'll hear a recording featuring some of their voices. We begin with an update from Michael and Hilary von Allsberg, a married couple who wanted to work on how they handle political debate at home. So Michael and Hillary, they were not strangers when they came in. I believe you've been married nine years, is that right? Yes. yes. Going on 10. Yep. And Michael and Hillary have a family with six teenage children. <laughs> Listen to that. Ooh, is right. <laughs> Michael and Hillary also have some differing positions on some social issues and some political questions. And there was a moment in the interview that I found incredibly touching where Hillary was making a point about their children being exposed to social media and things that they were not able to influence or control. And while she was doing it, Michael made a face. Yeah. And well, you know what? Instead of me describing this, why don't we just listen to it? <laughs> I see your face. What do you think? I, I think I'm having a little bit of an epiphany moment right now. I love that. What is it? You just made a comment that our children are seeing what's going on in the world and that there's no civil discourse when it comes to certain issues. What are we modeling for them? Yes, that's why we're here. <laughs> so you and I need to, to get a lot better at having heated political conversations where neither one of us gets emotional or makes the kids uncomfortable. And it's not just you, it's me too. I mean, I think that we need to work on making sure that they recognize that you can disagree with someone and you can differ on what the issue is, but you still can come together with respect and kindness for the fact that you're entitled to your opinion and I'm entitled to my opinion and there's probably room in the middle. So 
did you hear the sweetness in her voice when he said, I think I'm having an epiphany? And she said, what is it? And she really wanted to know. Like, that's so moving. That's so wonderful. And then at the end, the part you didn't hear was where Michael said, we want our kids to see that our arguments end with a hug and a kiss. (laughs) Tell me, since you participated in One Small Step, have things at home changed? I think they've changed dramatically. Really, honestly, because one of the issues that we had was I'll play devil's advocate and take a position on something that I don't necessarily believe in just to debate. And sometimes, like, the kids wouldn't know that I'm doing that. One of the suggestions Hillary had was tell them that you're doing that so they understand you don't necessarily believe in that issue, but that you're taking a position just to have a debate and to try to teach the kids about the differing viewpoints that are out there. And we have not had a heated political discussion since that day. We've had political discussions. I've even had political discussions with the children that didn't get heated. Hillary? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I would totally agree. I would. And I think it's interesting because you said that you had your epiphany, and I had my epiphany sort of in one of those political conversations after the fact when we're sitting outside on the deck and talking about things and I realized that what you had said finally got through to me which was it isn't about the topic it isn't about being right or wrong it's more about the tone or the emotion in which it's presented and I think we're hearing that in the media right now and everything that's going on with the impeachment hearings when you just come out with clear reasoned, rational voice, and you don't have to have all the theatrics, it gets through. And I think that I need to apply that when I'm having those conversations too, and that that has been my epiphany. Well, that's fantastic. And and I really do think that you were a model of what can happen to people who already have a relationship, just to get them to listen, to take a moment to step out of their day-to-day life and listen and talk about their situation. And uh, it was a great conversation to be a part of, and I really want to thank you for being a part of it. Thank you. We were thrilled to be part of it. It really was. We walked out and went, that was awesome. (laughs) We really did. Thanks, Mark. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Hillary and Michael Van Allsburg. I'd like to introduce a pair of people, though, who did not know each other when they came into the room to record. And those are our friends Lynn and Paul here at the front table. Paul, would you like to give us an idea of where you think you and Lynn stood when you came into the room? Well, they gave us just a snippet of who we were going to meet. And the snippet that I got was that she was a proud feminist activist. So I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. (laughs) I remember you two coming to uh, the meeting and uh, almost immediately the talk turned to unions. And you had very different uh, positions on that. Well, I think part of what we realized is that we're a product of our environment and how we grew up, of course. And I was a teacher. I wish the teacher unions were a little stronger. They're gaining a little more. Paul came from a farming family. And my father would hop on the train in high school and do farm work during his summers. And what we realized is that Paul's father 
and Cesar Chavez were not compatible, whereas he was compatible with my dad, that his family and his father, they were trying to support and keep their way of life, as was my father and his family. Even though we came from different points, we really wanted the same thing. And that was quite a revelation for me because, as she mentioned, our, our fathers, that's one thing I learned through this whole thing, is our fathers influenced a lot of what our beliefs were. And uh, for me, my father's a very easygoing, never said anything bad about anybody except Cesar Chavez, <laughs> and, who was one of her heroes. And, but it made me realize, because from that perspective, and he was trying to unionize the farm workers and it was threatening my father's business, you know, that was bad. But realizing from Lynn's perspective what the unions offered to them that they needed made me take a second look at what unions are instead of just a bad thing. So at the end, after it was all done, she reached in her purse and said, I brought a gift. And my impression was she was holding it to see whether the person was worthy of, <laughs> of getting the gift. <laughs> I didn't know whether I was going to throw it at you or give it to you. <laughs> and it was a heart rock that she had collected in Canada and, and gave to me. And that was just very touching. And especially I felt like I had earned it. Yes, so. yes, yes. And I do have to say that Paul came with some ammunition, and I felt like I was having to make sure that I was representing the feminist, liberal, <laughs> Democrat properly. But it was afterwards when Mark took our pictures outside that I think we both let our guard down, and that's when I realized we were going to keep in touch and be friends. And that is why we take the photos at the end. Thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Another pair that already knew each other when they came in were Chris and David, who were brother and sister. And Chris and David had decided to quit having conversations about politics because it was just getting a little too difficult and maybe ruining some family gatherings. And all of this is kind of ironic in a way because Chris is with us tonight. She's representing the Center for Community Dialogue. And I'd like her to come up on stage now and join me. One Small Step was a great experience. I really enjoyed it. And I do have to say my brother and I are having more conversations now. So tentatively, <laughs> working our way into it. What I'd like to do now, I've been asked to give a five-minute explanation of the neurobiology of conflict. As you know, our brains are marvelously wired to keep us alive and keep us safe. And this happens at an instinctive level, and it's controlled by the limbic system, particularly the amygdala, which is a little bundle of neurons behind your ears. But you can imagine the amygdala as a little prairie dog in your brain, okay? And you imagine a little prairie dog sitting up, looking around, very alert all the time. What's happening? Am I safe? Is there a threat? Am I safe? That is what your amygdala is doing constantly. And when your amygdala perceives a threat, it doesn't waste any time going to the thinking part of your brain. It just goes right to action. So we know what those three actions are, right? Fight, flight, and freeze. So you see a snake, you jump back. Flight. Somebody's throwing a ball, it's about to hit you in the face, you put your arm up. That's fight. That's a, a protective response. You get attacked by a grizzly bear, which I know happens to us all the time. And <laughs> you curl up in a ball and you freeze. 
And this is very useful for protecting your body survival. But human beings are not just physical organisms. We are social organisms. And in our complex social world, our brain perceives attacks to our identity with the same intensity as attacks to our physical being. So let me give you an example of some attacks to identity. These are things like perceived attacks on our competence or our reliability or our integrity or our belonging to a group or our status in a group. So let's say you're telling a fantastic idea to your significant other and your significant other attacks your identity in this way. <laughs> All right, how many could go from zero to 60 on that little exhalation of air? Yes, okay. These are the subtle attacks on our identity and that we are responding at the instinctive level with fight, flight, or freeze. Not necessarily our best responses in a social situation. In our current culture, people's political beliefs are often perceived by our instinctive brains as attacks on our identity. Why do we do this? Well, here's why on a neurobiological level. At any given moment, including this moment, about 11 million pieces of information are coming into your brain. As this data comes in, we decide right away what we're gonna do with it, and then we act on these decisions. In other words, our brains are wired to stake out a position and act on it moment to moment. And usually, this staking out of a position is not a problem. However, under conditions of conflict or threat, such as in a divisive political environment, for example, our instinct is to cling even more tightly to our positions because they provide our little prairie dogs with a sense of control and safety. When our position is met with a counter position, I think this is the truth, and now you're telling me something different that I don't think is the truth, the brain instantly perceives this as a threat. So when you are asking someone to have a conversation with you, you're you're putting them in a position of threat. And I think that's why so often it's hard to have these conversations with people of different positions because we automatically want to avoid positions of threat. Well, what makes it possible to get past this natural instinct and have a productive dialogue? There are a number of elements, but one key thing to keeping our little prairie dogs feeling safe is to have interactions that build connection, build trust, foster senses of safety. Dialogue circles allow face-to-face -face discussion in a safe and respectful environment with a focus not on our position, but on our underlying interest, on our needs, on our values. Circles allow us to get past positions in a non-threatening way and to consider shifting our position without feeling that we're being asked to give up part of our identity. So we ask that you come in with the intention to listen from your heart, to quiet your thoughts, to quiet your prairie dogs, okay, and be open to hearing without judgment what someone else is saying and to listen without interruption. We also ask you to speak from the heart and to speak from your personal experience. So say, I think this, I have experienced that, not they do this, everybody else thinks that, because we want you to speak for yourself. That was Chris Medvesic, representing the Center for Community Dialogue and Training. Their team then led the attendees in sampled dialogue circles, where everyone shared more ideas about how we can better communicate over the background noise of division and partisanship. 
AZPM and StoryCorps presented the live event, attended by close to 150 people, in celebration of the first year of One Small Step. Search One Small Step at azpm.org to listen to more conversations. Now the third in a five-part Arizona Spotlight series, Youth Crossing Gender Borders. It explores the landscape of young people and gender identity. Laura Markowitz talks to teens, parents, and experts on the forefront of understanding the spectrum of human identity. Next, Laura Markowitz brings us an interview between a transgender boy and a transgender man. When 16-year-old Noah James came out as trans his freshman year of high school, he wished that he knew an adult trans man who could give him life advice. Scotty Pignatella welcomed the opportunity to be interviewed by Noah. Pignatella is 48 years old and works as an engineer at Raytheon. Here are excerpts from their conversation with original music by Noah James. I anxiously await your reply. I'm not crying, there's just something in my eye And if I think too much, will I fall underground? I want things to just be okay Should I hunker down and wait another day? And if I don't touch it, will I just disappear? Well, I'm Noah. I just came out as trans, like, a year ago, probably. Congrats, man. Um, A lot of this for us is going to be kind of advice for younger trans males. So I was just curious, are you publicly out to a lot of people, or are you more stealth? Um, That's changed over my lifetime. I had a fairly public transition because I transitioned at work Mm -hmm. in my 20s. At some point, though, I kind of went stealth, and then I was stealth for about 10 years, and I realized that that became another closet. So I decided to not do that anymore, and that started another coming out process, if you will. So I'm pretty much publicly out. It's it's kind of scary to think what is going to be the discrimination. Like, what, what do you see what often? What could happen? Yeah. You know, for, for anybody who's younger, you think safety first. You have to judge every situation for itself. You know, there may be some situations where you really don't want to be out, maybe publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm out in as many places as I can be, but at the same time, I don't walk around always with the sign <laughs> or with a rainbow flag on the top of my hat. Because sometimes it doesn't make sense, and in some situations, it may not be safe. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I the way messed up his brain Mama's scared cause he's losing weight Snow is white and blood is red and both now stain his porcelain head Bye. 
I know. I have a lot of people who want to be allies and are even our allies, they just get it wrong a lot of the time. Or um, there's a lot of confusion uh, between sexuality and gender identity. And then confusing even things like gender nonconformity to being transgender and trying to relate experiences that they have to my own where like saying that, oh yeah, I hated dresses too. I'm just like you. And it's like... People who are cisgendered, they don't have to think about how to fit in. So there's a lot of um, well-meaning ignorance. That's a good term for it, well-meaning ignorance. So you came out like during working. <laughs> I've, I've got on my Facebook page that I came out when I was five because <laughs> there really wasn't a coming out process. But that's the first time that I started having trouble. I started having the problems of not fitting in and being painted into a, a gender box that I didn't want any part of. It started in kindergarten when they had us out playing in the yard and they wanted everybody to line up and I went and lined up with all the other boys where I belonged. I'd been playing with them, I got along with them and I didn't line up with the aliens. And I had a teacher come and get me and say, no dear, you're confused and grab me out of that line and go throw me into the other one while all the other kids were laughing. And I heard of a little river bend So far away won't see any other men And the birds and the bees And the wind and the trees sing for me And I heard of a town beside the sea like you conform now just to make yourself more comfortable or other people like male gender norms yeah. do I force myself into that to make other people you know I make myself comfortable and there there are some things where I am not painting in the line so to speak but for the most part I blend in really well but I do what I like to do not because society says I should I, I try to be authentic to myself for me now, I feel like I'm starting to pass more. And now it's like, guys are painting their nails now. And I'm like, maybe I can. But it also just makes me uncomfortable. So there's like areas where you just have to kind of swim through and be like, am I happy with this? Is this something I'm doing for me or other people, you know? I think we worry about everything that we do being judged by other people, right? If you're worried about passing, you're worried about everything you're doing and how somebody's going to read you mm -hmm. every moment of the day that you're outside. It takes a lot of energy out of you every day. It's disconnection with your body, so it starts first thing in the morning. What do I have to do to try to make myself look right mm -hmm. before you can walk out the door? And then you get out the door and somebody misgenders you at the bus stop. And then you get to school or work and you run into people who want to be bullies. And it just it compounds all day long. Somebody that you meet for the first time. You get treated completely differently whether they read you as a male or a female. You're waiting to see what they're going to do so that you have to change your reaction to how they read you. And you have to make a decision on whether you're going to correct them or not. And then you have to deal with the rest of the conversation. You have a storm of things going on in your brain. So how do you navigate that? Is it... Um... 
Is that something you think you grow out of or? The farther you get with transition, as well as whatever medical interventions it takes to help you be comfortable, because that's different for everybody too, that will all combine to help you settle into, okay, this is who I am. And when you're not fighting how other people read you all day long, yeah, that stress level goes down a lot. If you could have gone back in time and given yourself a general piece of advice, what would it be? Probably the most important thing I would say to any of us is to be patient and try to love yourself as best you can as you are and give yourself time to grow into who you are. Right there. That's what is the hardest. Being patient. Being patient. Oh, that hurts. Is the worst. <laughs> Even though I've only been out one year, I, it's it's been my entire life. It's so hard to be patient. I just want it not to be a big deal anymore. Something that I can I can be transitioned and somewhere along the journey where I'm comfortable. And just have it be me. Like I'm Noah and I'm here. <laughs> when I was younger, I didn't have the word transgender. What the words I had was like ghost. I feel like I'm inhabiting someone else's body. I never connected it with mine. There's never like a day off where I'm, I'm fine. I mean, there's days where dysphoria is lighter and I don't think about it as much. But it's still there. It's still there. And that's probably the most exhausting thing. That's part of why some of the suicide rates are so high is because people get tired. There's another study that came out that said that just even using a trans kid's preferred name reduces their risk of suicide by, I think, 60 or 70%. You don't have to deal with as much of a disconnect. But you hit it on the head with, you know, being a teenager, sometimes things are very intense and things can seem very life or death. And that is part of being a teenager, unfortunately. And that'll settle down a little bit at some point. But in the meantime, we've got to help you guys live through that. You hear the statistics and it's just terrifying. For God's sake, don't be a statistic. (laughs) Please don't be a statistic. I mean, every last one of you kids is wonderful. There's no reason to do that. And if this helps anyone out there, not do something horrible to themselves, then it's been well worth it. It's really nice to hear someone from the other side. I think sometimes it's scary thinking that mm-hmm. either like half of us are going to die off or we're not going to make it, that, that there is a hope and there is a goal and there is a future. That was Noah James interviewing Scotty Pignatella. The story was produced by Laura Markowitz with music written and performed by Noah James. To learn more about support groups for transgender teens and to hear other episodes of Youth Crossing Gender Borders, visit the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. And tune in next week for Episode 4. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance from Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.